so we focus on multifamily real estate because why multifamily, right? It's, it's an essential need. It's recession resilient, you know, in the sense that every person needs food and shelter, that, you know, there's always going to be a need for shelter. Other asset classes within real estate is harder because it's always going to have more cyclicality. So that's why we pick multifamily. And the reason why we're not doing, you know, fix and flips and brokerages, because eventually, like, what we're, our focus is passive income. And we believe that, you know, eventually down the road, we want to kind of step into like a more strategic role and kind of hand the day-to-day operations of the business to someone else. So we can, you know, we have time to pursue our own passions as well. So we want for ourselves the same thing we want for our investors. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Lin Ying Zhou. Lin Ying is a multifamily syndicator with Acros Capital who has a background in Wall Street trading. And while building her track to being a partner in investment management, she realized that she wasn't satisfied with her life and quit her job to travel the world. That freedom was fueled by the passive income that she generated with her small multifamily apartment building. And she realized that she could scale that business up to help other families achieve that same kind of freedom too. So in this episode, Lin Ying will tell us how to invest in apartment buildings to achieve financial freedom and how to work with syndicators to become a passive investor. If you're new to this podcast, welcome to the show. If you thought it was informative and engaging, consider subscribing to the podcast. We release episodes every Wednesday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lending company based in the Bay Area and has funded over $2 billion over the past few years. We offer competitive rates and amazing service. And for being an Everything Real Estate Investing Show listener, you'll get a discount on your processing fee. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan for your next fix and flip project, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan on an investment property, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get the process started. All right, Lin Ying, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Ningying Zhou. I'm one of the founding partners at Acres Capital. What we do is we do multifamily real estate investment. So we, our mission and goal at Acres is to help our investors generate passive income and achieve financial freedom. So we do that through buy and hold multifamily. So just think large apartment buildings. Exciting. And can you tell us your story and how you got started with multifamily investments? Yeah, sure. It's been a long path to real estate. I actually got started in my career as, in finance. So I was a fixed income trader and analyst and semi-portfolio manager for large asset managers. So we manage, you know, money for institutions like, you know, Amazon and, you know, for hospitals and pensions funds and things like that. And so I was trading corporate bonds for about 10 years. And then I left that industry when traveling for six months. During that time period, my rental property, I've owned rental property since 2010. So that was providing enough passive income to cover all my expenses while I was living on the road. And, you know, just through talking with my current business partners, we decided to come back and really, you know, dive deep into real estate full time. So, you know, if it was working for us, why can't we just bring it to other people? Essentially, That's great. Can you talk a little bit more about those first few properties that you purchased that allowed you to live overseas for six months? 
So my first property was a triplex in Boston, and I actually used the house hacking strategy. So most real estate, you know, investors, beginner or experienced would know like house hacking means that, you know, you buy a multifamily and then you live in one and then you rent out the other, which helps cover your mortgage. So I did that for about two years or so. And then I moved out of that full time to buy my condo. So that was just a three family in Boston. I bought in 2010 and it was really tremendous value. It was, you know, the state of the market at the time. It was the death of the recession. And so I got it for a really good price. And, you know, through the years, the rental income has increased over time and, you know, I self-manage it. So it's provided some really great cash flow for covering my personal expenses. And was that one property enough to cover your living expenses while you were traveling abroad? Yes. So it was enough to cover both mortgages. And then, you know, traveling abroad is relatively cheap if you're not traveling in any of the Northern European countries or Japan. So I was mostly traveling through Asia at the time. So, you know, living expenses on the road is way cheaper than living in the United States. That's really cool. So my girlfriend actually did that as well. She was working full time and then she just hated it after a couple of years of working. And she went to go travel for two years abroad, you know, Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia doing the digital nomad life. Yeah, it's awesome. She was saying that it's actually not that expensive. You know, in Thailand, you can have an apartment, you can eat out every day, you know, go drinking at night, and it only costs like 600 bucks a month. Yes. So we actually had, I, I remember we we're traveling through Russia, Mongolia, and like, you know, China. And my business partner and my travel buddies at the time, they had a budget of like $50 a day per person. So just imagine that, like how cheap it is to kind of be able to live, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we stay like relatively cheap hostels, but it's nice, you know, it's like five star hostels by, you know, peer reviews. And, you know, you're able to eat, you know, go see places, stay, you know, in lodging all for like basically around $50. But then if you go to Japan, then it's way more expensive. So Oh, for sure. Yeah. So were your business partners like your friends on, who are also investing in real estate who travel with you? Yeah, so my current business partner, you know, it's Christina and Charlie. And Christina and I actually worked together for four years at our last job. So she was a focus on mortgage-backed securities. And I was focused on corporate bonds. And then we realized that we worked really well together. And then when we're traveling, you know, traveling always comes with its own individual set of challenges. And we see how each other handle those challenges, how we solve problems. And basically that kind of, you know, that really create the foundation of our business relationship is, you know, we want to work together going forward and we share similar goals and, you know, we share similar passions. So, you know, so we created a partnership together to work together. So now we've been working together for almost eight years now. Awesome. That's so interesting because when I hear of like corporate bonds and Wall Street, it reminds me of that book, Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. Right. How was that like? How was that like working on Wall Street for those 10 years? I mean, so I was on the buy side. I dealt with the Wall Street a lot, but I wasn't on the Wall Street myself. So buy side, you know, there's the buy side and sell side, right? The buy side is basically the client side and the sell side are, you know, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanley's out there. So they're in charge of selling you the stuff. So the buy side is less stressful because it's not commission-based, you know, because you're working as a broker, you know, you kind of eat what you kill, right? But on the buy side, you're kind of working on, you know, salary and bonus and things like that. So it's less stressful than the sell side, but then at the same time, you're still dealing with a lot of money. So there's a lot of analysis and negotiation that goes into like a day-to-day. And I love that job. I mean, in terms of the responsibility and, and just being able to see 
you know, different trade ideas come through, you know, selling this bond, buy the other bond, like, what's the relative value and what, how do you make more money from those things? So I actually lo- love that aspect of the job because it keeps it interesting every day. And what was like that turning point for you where you decided, okay, I've been in this job for 10 years. Let me take this, I guess, prolonged vacation and go live abroad. I think it's more of a cultural issue. I think, you know, after working in that industry for 10 years, I got to the point where I started thinking about kind of what my purpose is. Once you start making, you know, money and money is not an issue anymore, then you start thinking about what's the greater purpose, right? And that became like part of the reason why I left is because I really didn't see much purpose in my job. Um, sure, you're making wealthy, right? You're preserving capital for the pensions. That's great. But it doesn't feel like I had much control. And I really was just like clocking the wheel in my last job. And then there's a cultural change, a managerial change, an organizational change that I wasn't a fan of. And I realized that I really want to control my destiny, that I want to have the flexibility to travel. I want to have the freedom to do other things, to not have to constantly have FaceTime in the office, you know, and just having that flexibility is the key of why we kind of went into real estate full time is to be able to control, you know, what direction our company goes, what my destiny would be, and how we want to spend our time. So that's really the transition into kind of from the corporate job into an entrepreneur. Were you reading any books or listening to any podcasts that kind of influenced that decision? Not at the time. After we decided to go into real estate, we started listening to podcasts like, you know, Bigger Pockets or, you know, Best Ever podcasts and things like that to really just get our knowledge in place, but not when we're, when I was making the jump because it's a long period, right? It took me about, you know, eight months to make the jump from corporate into being an entrepreneur. And, you know, when I was traveling, first two months I was traveling on the road, I was fully convinced that I was going to come back find another corporate job, you know, after I'm, I've done my, you know, short sabbatical and, and just keep going on that career path. But then, you know, eventually I realized that that's not what I wanted. And that's how we made the transition together. Actually, my business partner made the same transition. So, you know, they all went from corporate into entrepreneurial with me at the same time. And so during those times, what kind of thoughts were going through your heads? And do you guys have any like doubts or challenges? There's always doubts and challenges. There's still doubts and challenges to this day. You know, being an entrepreneur, you know, there's always the aspect that you're giving up a cushy salary to basically face the unknown because you don't know if this is going to work out, right? There's so much risk. And just within our fans and family, it's hard because they don't really understand why you're doing what you're doing because we, we all have really great jobs, right? And it's easy. It's, you know, it's, it's cushy. It's comfortable. And they just didn't understand, like, why would you give that all up, right, to to take a, such a huge risk? So I think that mindset, kind of being able to support each other in that mindset was so key in that, that we're doing the right thing. And um, and even to this day, right, that, you know, we constantly have conversations about, you know, what's going on with COVID and what's going on with the future growth of our company. How do we source more deals? So, you know, where are some other opportunities that we can focus on? So these are all, you know, things that we're talking about on a day-to-day basis. And just, you know, I think at the end of the day, we just kind of support each other, lift each other up. Yeah, that's great. How do you decide who you let into your inner circle to become a partner? Because, I mean, this is a very big decision. Yeah, so there are only three of us right now. We were there from the very beginning. We have briefly talked about kind of inviting someone else in, but we didn't come to a consensus. I think the really important thing about getting the partnership is you're getting into bed with someone for a long time. 
and you're putting the time and effort into creating this business. And so we, the very first thing that we did was actually sitting down and just talk about our goals and our ethos and see if those align. Like, do we want the same things? Do we value the same things? And so I think that's really important when the partnership, because I've seen a lot of partnerships kind of fail later down the road because they didn't do that first part. You know, they were like, oh, you know, we have a deal. We have an opportunity that we can go together. Let's do it. But then you spend two years working on the opportunity. And then all of a sudden your partner wants something completely different than what you want. And now you're at, you know, at the fork in the road and you can't really you know, decide. So now you either sell the business to the other person or you just go separate ways or, you know, somehow you compromise, but one party might still be unhappy. So I think it's really important to just come to consensus in the very beginning, you know, set expectations. And then you decide whether or not that person's worth kind of getting in partnership with. And you also want to obviously figure out complementary skill sets. So, so something that you're not good at, that hopefully your partner is better at it than you. So. Right. And, you know, of all the businesses that are out there, how do you guys end up in like multifamily syndications? Like why not something like I don't know, Amazon FBA or why not you know, a, a brokerage, right? Where you guys are helping other high net worth clients buy and sell bonds or something like that. Yeah, so we focus on multifamily real estate because why multifamily, right? It's, it's an essential need. It's recession resilient, you know, in the sense that every person needs food and shelter, that, you know, there's always going to be a need for shelter. Other asset classes within real estate is harder because it's always going to have more cyclicality. So that's why we pick multifamily. And the reason why we're not doing, you know, fix and flips and brokerages, because eventually, like, what we're, our focus is passive income. And we believe that, you know, eventually down the road, we want to kind of step into like a more strategic role and kind of hand the day-to-day operations of the business to someone else. So we can, you know, we have time to pursue our own passions as well. So we want for ourselves the same thing we want for our investors. And, you know, to accumulate a portfolio of multifamily real estate, it really helps to kind of push us toward that goal. Um, Other things I think is more kind of active. You have to be really involved in the day-to-day job, you know, you know, brokerage or commission-based. So you really have to kind of go out there and, you know, put in the hours. And, you know, that's just not something that we're really focused on. We want to be able to put in hours right now and have those investments work for us in the future. Yeah. So it's more of like a passive income type play where you put in a lot of work now and then you have the system that's operating, even though you don't have to be active in those roles. Right. I mean, that's going to be, you know, further down the road, right? Right now we're very active in our company uh, in terms of, you know, how we're buying and selling and repositioning our assets things like that so you know that's really the long-term goal of our company is to get to that point but you know in the short term we're gonna we're gonna be very active in our business yeah so what are some of the day-to-day operations that you guys are doing right now so the three of us have different role definitions um so i'm mostly focused on acquisitions so I do the underwriting, the deal analysis. I talk to brokers. I submit all lies on deals. And so that's really my responsibility is to uncover opportunities and decide whether or not they're worth investing in. And then Charlie, he has a really strong background in marketing. So he is our sales and marketing person, and he does most of our capital raising efforts. So we have a monthly newsletter that goes out. So he generates a lot of content for our website, for a newsletter, for our white papers. And then he puts together a strategy for capital raising and getting investor engagement and investor relations and things like that. 
And then obviously we have a portfolio assets. So Christina is focused on the asset management side. So she talks to the portfolio managers, uh, the property managers, you know, the vendors, the contractors. And, you know, we're currently in the process of selling some of our assets. So she's been talking to brokers on that side to, you know, figure out the best price and go through the due diligence process as well. So there's quite a bit of role definition. So it kind of varies day to day what I do, whether or not there's a deal and whether or not there's not a deal. But, you know, I'm on podcasts, you know, capital raising is it's a team activity. So, you know, we're all going on podcasts and talking to different investors and things like that. So that's something that, that we share across the board. When you were first getting started, how were you able to source deals in the first place? We so the first few deals that we did was sourced almost entirely off market. We went through wholesalers, so we actually made an effort to fly to. So we invest all on this, so we actually made an effort to fly to that city, and then just spend a few days there, getting to know the neighborhood, the area, and the people that are active in in that in that market. And so we built a really strong team from the very beginning. You kind of gained to know, you know, the brokers, the large brokers, the small brokers, the, you know, anything from residential to commercial brokers, and then the wholesalers that's involved in the market. And then we, you know, we talked to contractors, we talked to property managers. So we kind of tried to do that entire process every time we enter a new market. So the first deal, you know, came from a wholesaler and then the next deal was off market. Another deal was wholesaler as well. So all the deals that we did was off market deals, which, you know, came as a result of the relationships. It's crazy that people wholesale their apartment buildings. Yes, they do. Yeah, I mean, they wholesale anything. I mean, these are smaller units. So they're, you know, like a seven unit, 11 unit and a five unit. So they're still building. They're just not, you know, it's very rare if you're going to see someone wholesale 200 unit building, but you definitely will see it like 20 units or less. There are people active in that space. Yeah, 20 units or less is going to be like the mom and pop owners. So it's going to be easier to talk to them and get a wholesale deal. Yeah, they have all these, you know, direct marketing campaigns and things like that, mailers that go out. So they get quite a bit of traction from talking to these mom and pop owners. So are all of your partners based in New York? So I'm based in Boston, actually. Okay. And my partners are in Boulder. Oh, Colorado. Yes. How did you guys all meet each other again? They were in the East Coast at one point? They were in Boston at one point, yes. And then after they left the corporate jobs, they decided that Boston is no longer for them because it's too dark and groomy in the winter. So they moved out to the outdoorsy Boulder, Colorado, which I do. I am jealous of them from time to time. Makes sense. I mean, we're from California. And then I've been to Boston around, was it, October timeframe? Actually, we went to a, a Dave Lindahl event. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like two years ago or so. And it was in Boston. So it was like, okay, very cool. Got to see my cousin there. It was very nice. Yeah, September and October is the best time to visit, for sure. Yeah. And so how did you choose the different markets that you guys end up investing in? So we have a pretty strict process. So we have a list of probably like 15 criterias that we look through. You know, when we decide to go into Phoenix, Arizona, we actually look through probably around 20 cities to see if they match up against criteria. So these criteria would be, you know, like population growth, job growth, vacancy, rent growth, you know, did the whether or not the market is landlord or tenant friendly, does it have a diverse economy? So all that population size, you know, all of that aspect before we dig in, you know, kind of dive into the market itself. So we, you know, have a spreadsheet that, you know, that have all these cities and all these criteria, and then, you know, we find the one that kind of rise to the top. What market do you guys have most of your holdings in? 
we were in Spokane, Washington, and then so we were repositioned that we actually just sold one property. We're under contract on another property. So we want to move that into Arizona. And then we have a property in Florida and then property in Dallas. I'm surprised you guys are in Spokane, Washington. I would think that's super tenant friendly and not landlord friendly. That's exactly why we're no longer going to be there. We chose Spokane because it was our first market and we wanted to focus on the secondary market that has really strong kind of growth tailwind from the coastal cities. So I live in Boston, Christina and Charlie lives in Boulder. So it's impossible to buy in these two cities for the cash flow to make sense. There's like appreciation potential maybe, but you know, what we really focus on is cash flow. So we wanted to pick a market that we have some familiarity with, but it makes sense on the cash flow side. So we chose Spokane because Charlie is actually Charlie's hometown. So he has family there and we can access the, those local resources and, you know, the relationships to build a deal flow. And utilize a lot of that, right, uh, during that process. So now that we spent a year and a half in Spokane, you know, like you said, it's becoming more and more tenant friendly. So that's why we're kind of trying to looking to transition out of that market into Arizona, which is much more landlord friendly. Have you guys had any challenges with that property? Uh, so we have three properties there. There's been challenges. I mean, as a landlord, as a property owner, there's there are always interesting challenges co- that come up. It's not challenges that tanks the business plan. You know, there are expenses, you know, CapEx that comes out of nowhere, you know, like because of the older building, for example. You know, I think for our first property, we didn't realize that. Actually, I think no one realized that the gas, the water and sewer line were attached to each other, even though they were sitting on separate parcels. So in the 50s, you know, they, when the last owner or the owner before him bought the property, they tried to separate the parcels out. So, and they did, but the city forgot to separate the sewer lines, the water and sewer lines of the property. So they were still attached. And so we had to spend money to detach them, you know. So that was like a, like a hidden expense. So there are a lot of these things that pop up, but, you know, the properties have performed pretty well. They're stabilized and, you know, and we're in the current sale process. So, so nothing too serious. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like you're saying that the water and sewer lines are connected for two separate properties and they should be split apart? Yeah. So these two properties were on one parcel at the time. And it was a four unit and a, and a single family. And, you know, maybe the single family served as like servants quarters or something at one point. So they were on one parcel at one point, And so the lines were all connected, right? So the water with, to the single family fed through the four family and the sewer too. So they all attached. But, you know, for the Parcels we probably separated, you're supposed to separate all the utilities. But in the 50s, you know, I think there was some bureaucratic fall through that caused that to not happen. And then when we bought it and tried to sell them individually, that's when we realized that it's all attached. And, you know, what we really did is we just created an easement, you know, an easement agreement for the two properties. And, you know, we sold, sold both properties at this point. So we don't own this, this asset anymore. Awesome. Got it. Can you talk about your buying criteria and what you look for in a deal? So we look for, because of our experience buying these older assets, you know, now our criteria is that we want to focus on assets as like in the 1980s. So you don't have to deal with asbestos. You don't have to deal with like potential sewer, sewage and plumbing issues. And we look for, for our syndication deals, we look for 75 units and up. So that's generally, it's not a fixed number. It's just that we want to look for enough big enough asset where we can have an on-site property manager. 
So a leasing manager, a maintenance crew, for example. And then uh, we look for Class B assets in Class B neighborhoods, and it has to be value-add. So we have to be able to create value. It cannot be turnkey, and we generally stay away from Class C and Class A. So Class B, right? That's like your sweet spot? Yes, yes. Got it. Do you guys have a preferred like ROI number or purchase price that you're trying to stay arranged for? No, because it really depends on the asset itself. Because if you think about it, right, even though the unit count might be the same, the unit mix may be different. So they will achieve different kind of rent. And then, you know, there's always the element of expenses as well. So we don't really, we're not really sticky to any particular number. I, I want to say like, oh, you know, $150,000 per door, I'm not going to buy it. You know, it really depends on the underlying fundamentals of the property. Hmm. What kind of financing do you usually get when you buy one of these assets? It's usually agency financing. So that means like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac's My Balance Loan, something like that? Yeah. So Fannie and Freddie, it depends on the size of the loan. It could be SBL, it could be small balance loan, or it could, you know, if it's bigger, it won't qualify for that. But yeah, Fannie and Freddie is long recourse. So that's really the best loan terms for these assets. And are you raising typically like 20% for the down payment and closing costs? We usually raise around 30 to 35%. You know, we do put around 25% down, but other things will cover the closing, the capex, and things like that. Yeah. How are you raising so much? It seems like you would need a lot of different investors to pull in money to buy one of these properties. Yeah, that's why we do syndication deals. And, you know, syndication is essentially, you know, like, like raising a private placement fund for this particular asset. So it's deal specific. So it's not blind fund. And, you know, we bring in investors that invest a minimum of $50,000. And then it could go up to, you know, a million. And then they come in as purely limited partners. So they are very, they're completely passive in the deal. So we execute a business plan and they take home the cash flow. What are the kind of terms that you offer for these passive investors who invest in your deals? It really depends deal by deal and the returns have been going down lately. So, you know, I would say, you know, I can give a range of like of returns. So generally the limited partners have get a preferred return, which essentially means that they get the cash flow before the general partners get paid. So that preferred return is probably around six to seven percent a year. So you get that in the monthly or quarterly distribution. And then the deals are generally a five to seven year holding period. And then your IRR nowadays are, you know, it's comparably lower than before because the rates are so low. So I would say your IRR is probably like, if I want to give a bigger range, it's like 10 to 14%. And your annual return, if you get your capital gains at the end, is probably around 13 to 17. So don't quote me on any of these numbers, obviously, because it's, you know, very deal dependent and very market dependent. You know, these returns go up and down based on the deal itself. But I think it's really important to understand that, you know, we try to underwrite very conservatively so we can meet these returns that we, that we basically are projecting for our investors. So it's all in the assumptions, right? That, you know, how do you make those assumptions? And, you know, we try to make very conservative assumptions and to have the deal still work for our investors. Absolutely. And, you know, markets change all the time, too. Like I work for a higher money lending company. And at one point we were doing amazing terms at very low rates. And then COVID happened. Mm. A lot of those terms are a lot less favorable now. Right. Absolutely. But changes every week. You know, I was also wondering. So you have a background in Wall Street, you know, buying and selling investments. I have a background in engineering. And when I was working at my full time job, 
I was just sitting there thinking, man, this is a waste of my time because nothing I do at my full-time job will ever translate to investing or creating my own business. Mm-hmm. I'm just learning to become a better engineer for this particular company. How do you feel your background in Wall Street has been and how does that help you become a better investor in the multifamily sense? I think my background is actually fully translatable to, fin- to to real estate because real estate is a form of finance. And my background as an analyst, as a trader, you know, it taught me a few things, right? So we have, you know, we have a pretty strong economic outlook. So we actually every quarter do a economic strategy outlook among the team ourselves. And, you know, that's something that we've done for 10 years. And so we kind of project out how we see the economy and how we see where seed rates are going to go. And that those are very important aspects for real estate investment. The other thing is, you know, just analysis, right? You know, how do we do due diligence? Doing due diligence on corporate bond is actually, you know, it's all in numbers. So if you have the right numbers and you analyze them, it's relatively the same, right? It's, you know, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? What assumptions? Like, what are the risks and returns? So the analysis aspect is pretty key as well. And then the other aspect of my job is always about relationship building. So as a trader, you know, you're building relationships with the people on Wall Street, you're building relationships with the people that are selling the bonds, and you're building relationships on the buy side. And it's the same thing here, right? Like I'm building, I have to build relationship with brokers, I have to build relationships with other, you know, syndication competitors, vendors, contractors, bankers, you know. So I've learned a lot from my previous job about relationship and negotiation that I can kind of transfer that into the current role. What are some of those key factors that you look for when you look at the numbers? Because you can present the same data to two different people and they'll come to two different conclusions. At the end of the day, you're looking at a pro forma on the deal. And the pro forma is entirely your assumptions. So for us, you know, we make the assumptions that we believe that it's achievable and it's conservative. And when we present the numbers to, to the investors, like we have a rough idea of what our investors want in terms of returns. And that's how, you know, if we underwrite our deals and the deals make sense and meets the return criteria of what our investors are looking for, then we make an offer at that price, right? And But if it doesn't, if it's like way low and we don't think we can successfully raise money for the deal, then obviously we pass on the deal. So that's really you know, just having a great understanding of what your investors want and, you know, just having them know that, you know, if you promise them this return, well, it's not a promise. If you project them this return, then you will likely will try our hardest to, to meet or exceed that expectation. And what do you think some are the common mistakes that new investors make when starting their syndication journeys? I think the new investors, you know, they come in as a limited partner. I think the one of the important thing, most important things that new investors need to do is just really understand the management team. Understand how they're underwriting their deals, you know, what are their track record? Because that's really what it is, right? You can't just look at a presentation and say, oh, you know, the numbers look great and I'm going to invest in it because the numbers look so great. Well, the numbers may be looking great because the person writing out these numbers are making really egregious assumptions and that will never pan out in the future and then all of a sudden you know you're expecting them to pay you money but then the money stopped because you know they can't do it so i think you just understand the management team the track record the abilities is so key and you know just to get educated that's the other aspect like understand the risk and returns of doing a syndication deal and you know how you can participate in one and you know what resources can you 
can you access from the team? I think that's key too. And the other thing is that, you know, you just want to make sure you invest with operators too, because they have the control over the business plan. So they have control of the asset and how it's run. So, you know, there are definitely people out there that's just out there raising money, you know, and then that's it. That's their entire role. And, you know, you want to be kind of careful with that kind of situation because they don't really have any control over the asset itself. Yeah. What about for new sponsors? What are some of those common traps that they fall into? You mean for the GPs? Mm -hmm. I think it, you know, as a new GP, right, you have to partner with someone to do the deal. Either you partner someone or you do it yourself entirely. I think the common traps is just not understanding what you don't know right? You don't know what you don't know. So there's a lot of education that goes into being a GP, like how, same thing, right? Same thing as an LP, that how you're making your assumptions, how you're underwriting your deals, are you underwriting correctly? What are some costs that you're not thinking of? What are some, you know, potential expenses that's going to increase in the future more than you're projecting? So I think a lot of these, the due diligence, the entire due diligence process is there's, it's full of traps. So it's important to kind of either partner with an experienced operator to do it, that will it'll save you tons of headaches down the road. Because at the end of the day, you're responsible for your investors' money. I mean, that you have their trust, you have their assets, and you want to make sure that they get taken care of, and you don't want to take any risk lightly. So if they're a new sponsor and they want to get into syndications, do you recommend that they maybe join some networking groups or go to some seminars to, you know, I guess get in contact with other GPs who are already doing it, and then maybe like raising money for their deal or um, somehow participating to learn how the whole thing works? I think if you want to be a GP, it's probably best if you're LP first. So if you go in passively invest in a deal, you'll learn a lot about the deal. If you're completely new to the space, right? And then you can get access to different networks and different, you know, maybe conferences, different resources, you know, that's not available to you because you're, you know, new to real estate. I think it just opens so many doors if you come in as an LP. But yeah, there are various ways that you can get educated. You know, you can do it yourself, like we did ourselves. But there are people who pay for coaches. Obviously, there are many coaching programs out there, fairly expensive. If people want to have like a shortcut to kind of get up to speed and get there. Yeah, makes sense. Now, speaking of doing some analysis, I'm pretty sure you've been looking at the economy and how things are shaking out. Do you have any comments and thoughts about what's happening now, especially with the latest news that the CDC has banned all evictions for non-payment of rent until the end of December? Yeah, I mean, the eviction moratorium is definitely a problem, right? You know, I think so far our assets, you know, I think generally real estate multifamily has performed relatively well compared to expectations when COVID was first happening, because everyone's expecting that collections would go, you know, go down, delinquency is going to go up, you know, there's going to be more vacancies, it's going to be tough. But, you know, the stimulus plan and the expanded unemployment benefits has really helped. And obviously that, that stopped at end of July. So, so far, you know, we haven't really seen as much of an effect on real estate, but I think, you know, there could be more pain down the road. For sure. I think there, you know, it's going to take a while for the U.S. to recover to pre-COVID levels. There are jobs that are certainly permanently lost. You know, there are businesses that are closed forever. So I think it's going to be hard to kind of get back to that level in a short time period. So I think there could be more challenges down the road. And if there are any, you know, properties or deals that was underwritten very aggressively, they could suffer. And there could be potential opportunities to acquire those assets in the future, probably like I'll say early next year. But it's, it's kind of wait and see, right? Because the government could do more stimulus or there could be more 
you know, support for the people. But I think, you know, one thing that we know pretty much for certain is that rates are going to stay low for a long, for quite a bit of time. So, yeah, I mean, right now, if you're getting a new home purchase for a conventional loan, it's like 2.75%. It's really crazy. Finney and Freddie loans right now are around 3%. For commercial properties. For commercial properties. Are you serious? Wow. And it's a three to five year interest only too. Jeez. I feel bad for anyone who bought a property in like 2019 and has that like five-year prepayment penalty. Yes. That's one thing that we consider too. I think it's very important to think about in real estate that there is, uh, for commercial loans, there is a prepayment penalty that could really, really create a deal. So, you know, we've been thinking about, you know, just doing fully rate loans because those have a lower prepayment penalty. It's usually, you know, it's a one-year lock and then it's usually around 1% of the loan value. So you don't have to pay the yield maintenance or the defeasance because I think that could be really detrimental in going forward. So we've been looking at that. And given that our rate outlook is that the rates are going to stay low for the foreseeable future, that we're not as you know concerned about rates going up in a fully rate situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Go for an adjustable rate. Yeah. During these times when you think it's going to stay low for a while. Right. And you can always buy, I mean, for agency loans, you can also buy a uh, rate lock and that's really cheap right now. So it's just essentially insurance against rates rising above a certain point. And that's really cheap right now because the rates are so low. Hmm. Are you just changing your business plan at all in terms of buying properties during this economic time? We've been more open about different opportunities. We haven't really changed it. I think we're just kind of keeping our eyes and ears open about potential shifts to our strategy. I mean, our core strategy is still looking for these large multifamily to bring to our investors. But I think if there are you know different opportunities out there in terms of development or other projects that we're not saying no to, we're actually exploring a little bit. Just because I think this market could present, this current situation could present a lot of interesting opportunities that may not have existed pre-COVID and, you know, want to make sure that we're paying attention to any market strategy changes. Can you give an example of something that you're looking at that you weren't looking at before? Still early on. I can't disclose it. Yeah, I have to keep it secret until, you know, until we go through the full process. But, you know, I, I can say it's like on the development front. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I was asking more in terms of the shift. Some people are you know becoming more conservative and if a deal is just marginally hitting their buying criteria now, they would they pass on it. You know, they add 10% buffer on their ROI or something like that. Like, are you guys doing any of that for your deals? Yeah, I mean, we have become more conservative in our projections for sure. Like, for example, like for the first year one, right, we're projecting no rent growth, for instance. We're, you know, we're projecting a, let's say the loss to lease at the economic vacancy numbers. We're keeping it fairly high just in case you know, there's collection of delinquency issues down the road. So yeah, we are definitely being more conservative in our underwriting and just to make sure that we are looking, you know, basically capturing any potential risks down the road. Because it's so hard, right? There's so much uncertainty out there. So we just want to make sure that all our bases are covered. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to quite a few syndicators over the past few months and a lot of them have actually stopped paying the uh, preferred returns simply because they want to keep the cash flow in their pocket in case they need it for an emergency. Yeah, absolutely. We paused distribution on one of our assets and we've restarted it. It all depends on what the numbers come in at. So, you know, we paused and then restarted based on where the collections come in, where our pre-lease numbers are. But yeah, it's a smart move because, you know, even though we may not be in trouble in terms of cash reserves, it's, we just have to make sure that we have enough cash in case something goes terribly wrong. 
And most investors understand that because they would rather, you know, you sit on some cash and pay them back later because at the same time, the preferred returns are paused that, that is still accruing, that they would rather have you sit on it and use it just in case than, you know, to have, you know, the banks come after you for not paying the mortgage. Yeah. Or, you know, capital call to ask for more money. Right. Exactly. Have you guys had any problems collecting rents from your tenants? It's been better than expected. You know, obviously there are tenants in trouble, but we've set up payment plans with them and most of them have been paying. You know, we've on some assets, we have skips. They just up and left, which is actually, you know, a better situation than them staying and not paying rent these days because then we can turn the assets over, uh, the units over and get new tenants in there. But yeah, I mean, I honestly, it is, it has been better than expected. We definitely expected much worse in terms of collections and delinquencies when COVID first started. I hear that too. You know, I thought that apartments were going to be doing really poorly and that everyone would just leave, but people need a place to stay, right? And if they're going to have to give up something, it's definitely not going to be their house if they can help it. Right. I mean, like you said, right? They, they need a place to stay. There's moving costs. You know, they have, you know, they have families. They have like completely you know, move their family into a different community and things like that. So there's different aspects to play. And I find that people generally will pay rent if they are capable of doing it. And then for tenants that are not, you know, they're in trouble, we obviously try to work with them as much as possible so that they can, you know, stay in their homes. Yeah, that's great. I was wondering, what is your like long-term goal? Let's say 10, 15 years down the line. Do you plan on having this whole thing run kind of on the background and then you can go travel again all around the world? Yeah, I think that is the long-term goal is, you know, we want to step into a more strategic position within a company, uh, if you say 10 to 15 years. And, you know, we've built a portfolio of assets and, you know, have a really solid group list of investors so that if we have future deals, you know, we can just like, you can, you know, it's readily marketed and we'll have people line up to these deals. But yeah, it's just to step into a more strategic role and then, you know, pursue our passion projects, whether it's, you know, nonprofits or travel or spending more time with family, things like that. Awesome. Well, Lingyi, this has been a very great episode. How can people get in contact with you? You can get in contact with me through our website at www.acrescapital.com. So A-K-R-E-S capital. And then my direct email is lzo, L-Z-O-U at acrescapital.com. And, you know, like I said, we have monthly newsletters that we send out. So if you want to get added to our investor list, please sign up on the website. And we have, you know, white papers that we write to just provide more educational content to our investors as well. Perfect. Do you have any last tip that you could give to our listeners before we finish up today? Get started early. Invest in real estate. Yeah. Before we actually leave, is it a good time to invest now when things are so uncertain? I'm always in a camp that you should never wait to time the market. Because it's more likely than not that you will miss an opportunity because no one can time the market. You know, there were people, you know, back in 2015 that said a recession is coming and they decided to sit on the sidelines. And to this day, they're still on the sidelines. And, you know, over the last five years, just look at how much our economy grew, you know, to pre-COVID levels. So I think it's important to kind of find the right deal and just think about your long-term goals for this strategy. Whether or not, you know, a short-term dip is really going to matter that much to you. And... If you're buying for a long term, don't try to time the market. I think it's really important to just get started, find the right deal that works for you, and then you know start investing. Because honestly, right now your money's sitting in the bank earning nothing. That's right. All right, well, Ling, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you having on the show. Great, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast.
Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks, and have a great day.